Awesome. So we thought we thought that um, a good place to start our conversation was to talk about science communication nowadays, and especially with coronavirus, because people hear science being communicated at them very, very, very often and very regularly. And I know that a lot of people, you know, it, it I don't know if it makes them angry, but it makes them lose some confidence possibly in science because they're hearing sometimes contradictory information and they're no longer, and they can no longer, they no longer see this science that's being communicated to them as being the, the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And instead they see this sort of messier version that's hard to draw conclusions from. And obviously proponents of science will say that that's actually a normal and a healthy thing because it means that, you know, they, we're not just accepting science verbatim and we're debating it and that's a normal part of the scientific process. Do you think, as a, in your capacity as a professor of science communication, <laughs> that it is possible to, to use science and to communicate science in such a current and news-like way? Or do you think that science, it was never just designed to be communicated like that and that it's just generally not going to lead to fruitful outcomes if we do communicate science that way? Well, as a professor of science, I suppose it's, you know, it would, it would make my job seem ludicrous if I were to say you can't, right? Right. So, I mean, I got, I got a, I guess, structural bias towards saying, well, of course you can communicate science um, in a news like fashion. I think you can. I mean, I, I actually, um, I think the distrust of science that's genuinely out there, I mean, like there's all kinds of studies and, and you know, we just anecdotal information by the day that suggests that there's a, a significant problem uh, in, um, in um, sort of the level of trust in, mm -hmm. in scientists and um, to some extent in some idea of science itself. I mean, I think broadly, if you look at, you know, how people would respond to a pulse or something, um, people who espouse things that, that we might think of as anti-science and no, no, I'm just doing the science, you know, I, I'm coming to a different conclusion. I'm doing the science. Um, there are very few people who will, there are some, but there, there are relatively speaking few people who will actually say, no, science is wrong. I, you know, I, science is X too much, too bad. Because no, no, follow the science sheeple is, is a much more likely response, you know, and there's, there's a bunch of stuff out there you can find on the web in, in seconds, you know, claims that masking is bad for you or masking doesn't inhibit the spread of coronavirus. And you say, you say this is the, the <clears throat> science shows this. Um, and, you know, in my Twitter pursuits, I mean, I see people who have significant technical background saying that. So it's, it's, it's not so much that there's a distrust of science, it's that there is a manipulation of the rhetoric of science to achieve a, mm. you know, other ends. Um, is it possible to communicate science responsibly in a breaking, uh, in a breaking news environment? I mean, something like, you know, and the answer is yes, um, it's possible. It's not, it, it, it's not possible without issues or problems. I mean, there are difficulties that are really there. Um, and I think, you know, going back to masking, the, the, the initial communication where uh, Dr. Fauci, who I greatly admire, and others were saying, you know, we don't really need masking out in the general public. Um, there's some, I think, um, confusion, perhaps. I'm not, I'm not sure quite what the right word is, 
as to whether people said that knowing it wasn't true, but under conditions of shortage, trying to sort of like manipulate public action to preserve masks for the people who absolutely did need it the most, you know, uh, medical medical people, first responders, that kind of thing. Um, or if uh, they really, you know, genuinely, you know, to the, the extent to which the science was unclear about the protective value of, uh, of masks. Um, but I think, you know, even though the public is, you know, the public is this sort of abstraction, there are lots of publics out there, lots, you know, and, and each of us are, part of the public some of the times and sometimes in areas that we know about we're part of the, the you know the expert cohort and so forth so you know everyone's part of some public mm -hmm. um, but I think in general um, the public is uh, I think more resilient than I think sometimes particularly science partisans or partisans of any particular stripe will give them credit for I mean I, you see the same thing with, with you know in financial coverage and don't tell the truth about X, Y, and Z because you know the full truth. They can't handle the full truth. It's too complicated. Um, I think you can say to people, um, "This is a preliminary result. This is you know." And 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 not only can you, I think that's been said often throughout coronavirus. And I think reporters have gotten better about it over the course of the pandemic, uh, and I think the public has gotten more sophisticated. I mean, just today, uh, I put out uh, both as a genuine question and as kind of a test of the system, uh, right. the question on Twitter saying, okay, if I get vaccinated, do I still have to wear my mask while I'm doing outdoor exercise, bicycling or walking and that kind of thing? And I got back, you know, I don't have a particularly big uh, Twitter presence, but I got back mm -hmm. dozens of answers uh, in, um, uh, in not that much time from people ranging from, you know, genuine you know, medical people or what have you to to lay public people who have been reading around. Mm -hmm. And both, I think, you know, they coalesced around what what appears to be the right answer. Um, but also they, you know, there, there was a, a clear understanding and several people pointed out that, you know, there really isn't settled science around some of these questions yet, in particular, the degree to which uh, you can either, uh, uh, that you can transmit uh, disease after you've been vaccinated. To see, you know, so so a lot of the point was, you know, you wear masks not just to protect yourself, but especially to, you know, if you have the disease to to uh, protect others. Um, so I really, and, and you know, that's a that's a currently active area of investigation. It's really important because mm -hmm. you know we're in the vaccination period now, and, and increasingly people will be out in the world. And um, you know, the public seemed to respond pretty well. So, 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 I mean, my little corner of this, you know, biased sample of people who would who would engage with a tweet by an MIT science writing professor. Um, so, uh, you know, to the first question, to the first sort of order question, is it possible to do science as news? The answer is unequivocally yes, it really is. Uh, and it is because, but it requires both uh, good reporting and writing. Right. I mean, one of the great errors that that people make is to overstate at, in the article itself, or in the, the you know the YouTube or the, the the news broadcast, overstate the degree of confidence people may have in a result. Um, and then it requires, um, I think, a certain amount of, of um, attention to and 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 um, respect for the audience. You know, writing the actual complexity that's there into your piece, it, it really won't kill them or you. Um, and if I may make a plug for the work that 
you know, my colleagues and my students do, um, it does make a difference who writes a story. And um, science writing is not, you know, there's a there's a, a, a longstanding journalist journalistic tradition that a good reporter is a good reporter on any story. And there is some truth to that. Um, but it is also true that lots of different beats or areas of coverage really do have um, forms of knowledge, uh, ways that ideas get communicated, underlying assumptions that are that have to be learned. You can't just sort of go into, you know, I as a science reporter couldn't go in and report on a baseball game. Even though <laughs> I've watched lots of baseball, I couldn't do a good job reporting to um, an audience what happened in a, in, a, in a game that had any kind of complexity to it at all. Um, similarly, uh, somebody who covers cops um, might be able to do a really good job on a Department of Public Works um, story, um, would, would have a lot, of, a lot more trouble doing a story on, um, say, the, uh, the, the GameStop short squeeze. Because right. there's, there's a bunch of stuff going on. There are a bunch of players who have different interests. Uh, I think a lot of people, there was a lot of bad reporting on that story that, that failed to understand uh, what a long history lay in the in the kind of maneuver that made the GameStop uh, stock bubble uh, grow so quickly, mm -hmm. uh, and made it such a such a you know dynamic and and moving target. Um, so so similarly for science, you know, there's a lot in science that you have to know, not just facts, uh, but but you know how science is done, how scientists you know what what scientists mean when they say one thing versus another in terms of how confident they are or what replication means or the difference between a phase one and a phase two trial, all these kinds of things. Right. You don't just know them going in. So as, as you know, if there's a crisis in covering science in the United States, at least part of it lies with the fact that a lot of editors assigning, you know, the people who assign stories don't fully understand uh, the need for some specialized skill in right. science. And so for, for writing a lot of science and science communication. We wanted to get your thoughts as a professor in science writing. Obviously, when you're writing, you know, a very professional science paper, you're going to want to be technical. Um, but also, we've also noticed like a lot of papers that are more towards a general audience, um, you know, like more, less technical, more, more in simple layman's terms. Is, is there kind of like difficulty trying to balance those out? Is, should, should papers be more technical rather than more for the general public? What, what kind of is that like? And do you teach one or specialize in one or do you kind of I, mix I, I them in? I certainly don't teach uh, technical or professional writing. Um, there are plenty of people at MIT, you know, working in my program, you know, in, in the department uh, who do. There's a, at MIT, we actually require every undergraduate, every student uh, to take um, four courses that are, are designated as communication intensive. So, um, and two of them are communication intensive in humanities. So you learn how to write, um, you know, academic arguments and, mm -hmm. you know, the uses of rhetoric and all that and persuasion, all that kind of thing. And two of them are communication intensive courses in their major where they're supposed right. to learn the, the writing and presentation and oral communication conventions. If you're a mechanical engineer or a molecular biologist or whatever it may be, um, you know, every one of those fields and subfields has, you know, particular ways in which they get their information uh, out to other members of the field doing that same kind of work. Um, and those are really two different kinds of writing or communication tasks. 
Um, so the, the, the short answer to your question is no, I don't think that um, papers that are intended to communicate research results or are in you know, some kind of review article trying to, to, to take a snapshot of where a given field or a given problem within a field where, you know, where the thinking has got to, those are, that's work that is intended for people who are engaged in that work and who need to get um, information so they can continue to build on the work that they're doing. Um, and there are real conventions there. there are, there's a, you know, there's a, um, you know, I think there's a formula for writing these papers. Uh, and there's certainly a formula that, that, that um, people develop as practitioners for reading them. You know, I know people who say, I never, I, you know, I read the abstract and I go straight to the figures. Mm -hmm. um, or uh, I read um, the, uh, the statement of the problem, first the introductory section, um, then I go to the figures um, and I ignore their conclusions because I want to work out what I think it means myself. There are, you know, people have very different, not hugely different, but there, there are a bunch of strategies for reading papers to extract the information that the reader, the professional reader needs um, to understand what's being uh, communicated and then to, to extract from it the information that's directly useful to them. And there's a lot of stuff in the just sort of conventions of scientific or technical writing that are designed to make that transfer of information as seamless, seamless and as swift as possible. And there are problems there, obviously. There's, you know, right. there, are all, there are all kinds of issues that people who are thinking about, you know, the replication crisis in some fields, and um, and the um, the way this, you know, the the formula for scientific papers can in fact obscure issues uh, that may be relevant to understanding either how an experiment worked or how to interpret the result or what have you. I mean, it's not like it's this sort of foolproof method of of, of getting stuff across. Uh, but it's designed for a specific purpose and it's used by a given community for that purpose. And that's very, very different from both what works to engage a lay audience and what the lay audience, you know, what, what, what you might seek, what, what that audience might seek out of, uh, you know, what they plan, how they use is kind of a completely utilitarian word. And, uh, you know, there are lots of reasons to read about science and nature and you know mathematics and all you know, the whole range of things that we might cover, we might consider as part of this this general field. Um, there are lots of reasons, including you know pleasure in learning new stuff, um, right. joy at the beauty of a given argument or result, all these kinds of things. But you know if you if you sort of put all, if you remember that all of that's included in the word used, a, you know a general audience, a public audience uses the science that you are communicating for different purposes mostly than do uh, than does. Uh, uh, a professional audience reading a paper that's communicating something within the field to them. So, I'm sorry, that, go ahead. That's actually, that, that, it's very interesting that you brought that up because a couple of days ago, I watched an interview with Elon Musk and a journalist asks him, you know, what would you think are the five or the 10 biggest problems that humanity should solve in the next hundred years? And one of his responses was that he hoped that, that there would be a higher speed interface essentially between human and machine because at the moment it's, you know, it's restricted to your mouse and your keyboard, and we're not that effective at communicating it essentially with our machine. And that got me thinking about the process that, you know, different scientists and science communicators use to communicate science with each other. And you just talked about how some people, and about how that's mostly done, uh, at least for people, for 
for communication between people of a similar background, it's often done with papers and there's an abstract and people, and some people have, you know, some people, as you mentioned, will read abstract and figures and others have different strategies. Methods first to see if it makes sense and you know, all that sort of stuff. Right. Right. You think, how, do you think that's sort of the best or the most efficient way of communicating science between um, scientists? Or do you think that there might be I, I don't want to say higher speed interface for communicating science, but do you think there may be ways that or conventions in science that sort of hold us back that make it slower to communicate things than it could be? I'm honestly not sure that the speed at which scientific results get communicated within a field is actually a major problem at this point. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it, there's an assumption there that this is really holding stuff back and it's not even remotely obvious to me that that's the case. So, I, you know, I mean, Elon Musk is a you know fabulously entertaining figure who has major accomplishments in certain domains, um, but I don't think he's much of a philosopher of science. Yeah. Uh, so so I yeah I, I I take the remark as provocative, but not as as necessarily an accurate statement of anything that, that that's really going on. Um, and the other thing is you know to try and show an uncharacteristic bit of modesty, I'm not a scientist, hmm. you know. I, um, my work doesn't, I mean, I read a lot of papers because I report on science, um, but I'm reading on them because I've decided that they, you know, impinge on a story, which is different than a, you know, communication of results. So, I mean, it takes those results and embeds them in a, in an architecture, in a structure of, uh, of um, communication that is different from the structure of communication in a scientific paper. Um, so, so, you know, I'm really not the one to ask if, you know, the way people construct papers is the best possible way, uh, to do anything. Um, you know, I will say that, um, plenty of scientists will say, and I think this is very true, and I, and this I can say from my reading of scientific papers, is that actually storytelling in this, you know, really, you know, a sharply defined genre of a technical paper, that, that storytelling still matters a great deal. Mm -hmm. That to make an effective paper that, you know, doesn't just sort of contain the information, but presents it in a way that, that readers will understand why this is significant. Mm -hmm. um, we'll, 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 we'll maybe get some emotional pleasure at the, at the, you know, the steps towards a conclusion, all these kinds of things. Uh, you know, uh, you know, if you think of rhetoric, one of the simplest ways to find rhetoric it's the study of um, uh, communication for persuasion, study of how different um, approaches to, to you know, taking an idea out of one person's head and putting it in another's uh, can make that idea persuasive or not. And there is absolutely a rhetoric of scientific communication. It's not something I'm expert on, but it's something I'm very much aware of uh, and pay attention to it when I, when I feel like I encounter it. I mean, if you just think, you know, one of the one of the classic examples of this, one of those sort of really great moments in technical storytelling, um, is the introduction, the first, you know, the first few paragraphs. And this is uh, this is slightly a cheat, but the first the first, you know, incident in Einstein's special relativity paper from 1905. And basically, he says, you know, isn't it weird? I mean, this is a drastic paraphrase, but isn't it right. weird that um, uh, when we talk, when we analyze the motion of a magnet through a coil, 
from the point of view of the magnet and the point of view of the coil, we, we use different apparatus to do so, but they're actually the same thing. Why does this happen? You know, how do we understand this? Isn't this just curious? Let's think about that for a while. And you know, when you say it like that, yeah, it is curious. That 19th century, you know, electromagnetic uh, physics, you know, the physics of electromagnetism mm -hmm. um, had this different treatment depending on which um, which part of the system you decided was doing the moving. Right. When you know, as as Einstein would, you know, and most of Einstein's paper isn't about that. Actually, it doesn't you know that's not the, the that's not the the through line of 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 um, uh, of that paper. Um, but it's a great way to grab your attention and move move through it. Right. Um, and and you know, there's a um, you know. Uh, the reason that's a little bit of a cheat is is that the you know the the genre of scientific communication hadn't settled down into its you know its real form you know its twentieth uh, you know its, its post Second World War you know formalisms so mm -hmm. Einstein you know there were there were you know I think in some ways a wider variety of ways to write papers available to Einstein in 1905 than there might be to to, to you and me now um, but right. still you know it's it's an example of of you know, a lovely bit of storytelling to grab the reader's attention and focus it on the critical problem of relative motion. And so we, we've seen that you've written several books about either sci scientists or scientific ideas. And when you're going through the process of you know, learning about the story for the first time, are you trying to sort of understand the mindsets and the motivations that led the various scientists to come up with their ideas? Or instead, are you trying to sort of track how that idea evolved through time and passed through from scientist to scientist? Or is it a bit of both? How would you go about recreating this scientific history? Well, that's, I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, and it's interesting because partly, I, you know, I've never posed it to myself, which means, okay, I got to think about something. Um, and it's interesting because uh, I think it captures some of what I try to do, but not all of it. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and uh, forgive a little family history here. My father was a historian. Uh, he was an intellectual historian of, uh, of China. Um, and uh, I, you know, I, he died when I was 10. So I didn't know him as an intellectual. I didn't know him, you know, as somebody uh, I could speak to about the questions that interest me about history and so forth and so on. And I only found that out through his books and papers, uh, which I started to read, you know, a decade after, uh, after he died, when I, when I hit my late teens and, and, uh, and early 20s. Um, and one thing I read early on in this attempt to, you know, sort of rediscover who he was and, and, and what he had done was uh, that, you know, an intellectual historians shouldn't just be interested, he said, in um, the answers that a given place and time came up with for whatever idea there was, but also look at the things that, that didn't make the cut, the ideas that were rejected or the, the, the arguments where, where, you know, the losing arguments sort of drops out of the sequence of, of events. And that has always stuck with me. And so I've never seen writing about science as simply an account of, you know, sequence of results, right? You know, first Newton did the laws of motion and then, you know, Maxwell 
you know, worked on electromagnetism, then Einstein showed how those two were in conflict and resolved that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true as far as it goes, but I don't think it goes very far at all. Um, and the other thing that, that um, you know, I, I, I deal with a lot of ideas in my work, but I wouldn't call myself an intellectual historian. I think of myself as a cultural historian because uh, I'm really interested in situating the work of science and scientists in their place and time uh, in you know, quite a rich range of dimensions. Uh, you know, how did scientists or people who are doing what we now call science, because right. remember science, you know, we think of Isaac Newton as a scientist, but he wouldn't have, the term didn't even exist yet in English. Mm -hmm. um, he, called himself a natural philosopher. Um, and, and uh, uh, you know, I think it's, those distinctions seem unimportant, but it tells you that whatever Newton thought he was doing, it wasn't what somebody today who would be in a physics department um, thinks they're doing. There's, the, you know, the, the, right. the, the framework, the, the, the apparatus of, of ideas and conversation and society and other cultural work that Newton would have experienced, were, you know, that whole surround of the thoughts and the notes and the results and the math he did. Everything that shapes that um, is different from what you know somebody working today at, at at you know difficult, interesting problems in math or physics or whatever. Maybe it's just a, it's it, it's different and it's different in important ways. And uh, you know, I, I I think that's really important. And I want to understand both what people were doing then, and I want to use that understanding. Um, sort of ask questions that are perhaps harder to get at, at, you know, what we think we're doing now. Mm -hmm. And you said you would describe yourself as like, a, sorry, a cultural writer, right? Cultural writer? Yeah. More, yeah. yeah. And, and so how, I kind of wanted to get your, your like process and how you would write one of these books, because obviously there's going to be a lot of scientific papers. Like you mentioned, maybe Einstein's aren't necessarily, you know, as formal as they are today, but how do you get all of the background history and other interesting stories surrounding these scientific discoveries besides just reading um, the published papers about the discoveries themselves? Well, I think, um, I mean, my books are about much, much more than the science. They hinge on the science. There's something that happens that's really interesting. Right. But they're, they're about all kinds of stuff. I mean, I, I, I think, um, you know, every book I've written and the one I'm working on now, um, has come from sort of some accumulation of hints that there's a bigger story there than I may have first guessed. So my very first book was about uh, uh, climate science and climate change. And I published that, you know, before you, well before you guys were born. I, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I wrote it in, uh, in um, sort of 85, 86 and early 87 and it got published in 89. Mm -hmm. So, um, and the saddest thing about that book, and it, it really, it's, it's literally tragic, um, is that even though the understanding of the climate system has grown you know, richer and more detailed and the arguments around how the climate system is changing have grown mm -hmm. more complex and the you know, measurements have gotten much more, you know, it's just the, you know, the technical capacity to make all kinds of measurements about what's happening in the climate system, all that's you know, enormously more advanced than it was you know, 35, almost 40 years ago, um, the, 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 
there's nothing in the book that's wrong. All the science is right. All the implications that significant change is underway caused by human activity um, to, a, to a point that could put us, put our assumptions about how the world works that we live on, that we depend on, you know, how agriculture works, all that sort of All those assumptions are called into question by climate change. Yeah. Right. It's not that the earth can't stand variations in temperature. Obviously it can. It has done so to a much wider extent than we're seeing now uh, over, you know, billions of years of geological time. Right. Um, but human buildings have built our society on, you know, modern industrial society over the last 200 years, a blink of the eye in, in geological terms. Um, and we built them with assumptions that the world will continue to behave pretty much as it has behaved while we're building it. And that's what climate change puts at risk. Um, and all that was in my book in, you know, published in 1989. It's still true. We've known this now for, you know, a long, long time. And the fact that we are so far behind where we ought to be in responding to this threat, mm -hmm. um, responding to the threat to your future, you know, my son's future, right. um, is just to me absolutely awful. So where did that book come from? How did I find that out? Well, before I wrote that book, I was a cub reporter for a magazine called Discover, which was then, it still exists after it's, you know, five or six changes of ownership, uh, but it was then owned by Time Incorporated, which is important because Time mm. Magazine, Time Life Incorporated, at that point, had this, uh, you know, in, you know, enormously sort of powerful sense of itself and big budgets. So they would send even cub reporters, you know, all around the country, even all around the world, mm -hmm. to um, to chase stories. And so, just in my, you know, in my, you know, early twenties, not that long out of college. Uh, I flew to New Orleans and reported on the threat to uh, the, uh, the river system there. I flew to the Outer Banks of North Carolina and I covered you know, changes in the shape of the islands and how, those, how that could produce you know, real effects. And two or three other stories, some acid rain stuff, you know, just a bunch of other stuff right. that told me as I reported each story, read the papers, talked to the experts, mm -hmm. walked over the ground where changes were, were happening or, 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 or could happen. You know, it was really pretty amazing, uh, I suddenly realized there was this, this common theme that each of these we were talking about, you know, a local kind of problem and uh, a, a disaster that people there feared, or the scientists there were, were identifying. Um, and they were all linked. They all, somewhere along the line, everybody said, you know, we, we understand this better because we have these different tools to, to study climate now, and they're pointing to these problems. And when I realized that three or four different stories that seemed, you know, acid rain's a really long way away from the fact that the Mississippi River changes its course from over over time. Right. Um, but when, uh, when, you know, after about two years and covering four or five of these stories, it became clear that there was a unifying theme, and that's where the book came from. And and then it's just a matter of you know doing what what you know doing what you do. I mean, nobody taught me how to write a book, and I had to kind of learn by doing it the first time and then relearn it with each subsequent time because it turns out much to my annoyance, you know, no book project is exactly the same. I mean, I'm getting a little right. bit more efficient and better at it now after, you know, 35, 40 years of doing it and now on to my seventh book. But, you know, it's, it's surprising how much you have to relearn. But, the, yeah. you know, the, the thing is, you know, I, I, I went to, I, I you know, uh, did a sort of a embedding at the National Center for Atmospheric Research for three weeks. I read a bunch of papers. Um, I 
I hiked a lot with people who were who were studying different you know different ecosystems and different climate systems. Um, you know, going to places where stuff is happening or has happened is actually really you know incredibly useful because you know it. it even if you don't learn anything that sort of directly ends up in the book, just sort of being in the place, smelling the air and just sort of getting a feel for it is, 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 is a useful way to start to think yourself into the world of the book. I don't know if this is answering your question. I, I think- No, it is, it is. Okay. Yeah. We, so it's interesting. So when, you know, people in high school are learning history, their teachers or, you know, parents or whatever, whomever it may be, tells them, well, you know, history is really important because it's one of the best tools to help us avoid make mistakes that we've made in the past. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that in science there's been a, a where, do, what, do you think there's been a flashy moment or just a, a moment that this has happened where we, or where scientists or some big scientific idea made a big misstep that could have been avoided had people been more informed about the history of science? Well, I'm not quite sure what you're asking there. Um, you know, uh... so I I'm thinking yeah. that for, for example, if you, it, you know, we scientists nowadays are inheriting, if you will, the the legacy of hundreds of years of other people thinking before, mm -hmm. and of people setting up all of these frameworks and think and thinking of all of those ideas. Do you think that there are potential problems that or that you see arise now or before with scientists either forgetting or not knowing enough about where that where that background comes from and that in turn makes them make big mistakes in with the research that they're doing now? Um I am not certain. I don't know um if it if you know an ignorance of the history of their field. Uh, produces sort of real errors, you know, major errors going forward in, you know, in specific research. I think it has, it produces other problems. Um, you know, many, many scientists, perhaps even most scientists, but, you know, certainly many scientists tend not to think of science as a social activity, as a social function. Mm -hmm. um, and so they will say things like, uh, or they'll believe and act as if it were true that uh, science is wholly meritocratic, that women uh, and uh, people of color, other minorities um, have the same full access uh, to the pursuit of science, scientific work, um, that you know, the, the, the white men who have dominated, um, you know, certainly the, 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 the lists of Nobel laureates, you know, the famous people right. of science are, are not entirely, but mostly, uh, you know, certainly in the West, you know, white guys. Um, and uh, we really know that, uh, you know, just as one problem, that there are, there are uh, huge uh, problems in science right now that result from, from uh, a failure to acknowledge the reality of that, you know, centuries long uh, restriction of access to, to the pursuit of science. Um, I think uh, scientists in general um, often feel that science itself imposes an ethic on scientific practitioners. You know, you, you don't, you don't um, 
you know, commit scientific fraud because you'll be found out, you know, I mean, just they, they, all that sort of stuff. But we know that lots of fraud happens, um, you know, not, not unlimited amounts, not enough to just, you know, to destroy the, the value of the enterprise, we know what happens. But more than that, I think, I think, you know, one of the things that happens is that sort of sense of the inherent sort of ethical instruction of science, that the idea is important, the result, you know, a single, uh, you know, a single, um, was it a single con- uh, brute fact can overturn the most beautiful theory. These, these notions, almost aesthetic notions of, um, of, of a sort of inherent um, moral code in science, that there's just the very practice, even if you aren't yourself a thinker about moral things, the practice of science imposes this, this, um, this uh, morality on you. And that, that has a sort of you know, kind of feedback effect of making you a moral actor. Well, we know that, that you, know, um, you know, I think actually fraud is not a huge problem in science. I think there is some because there's a lot of money you know, grant money, you know, there's just, there are a lot of institutional and resource reasons why somebody might desperately seek to get mm-hmm. the most fancy, you know, all that sort of stuff. But I don't think there's a great deal of that. I think, uh, you know, there's some, but not a lot. But what there really is, is a huge variation in the, um, in the sort of ethical life of laboratories and, and research groups. I mean, one of the things that's happened over the last several years is, is you know, this, this revelation that, that, that I mean, wasn't a revelation to those who were experiencing it, but this, this demonstration that there's an enormous amount more than there should be of, uh, of sexual harassment or you know, um, forms of discrimination that even if they don't you know, add up to legally actionable bad things can drive minorities, drive women out of the field. So the fact that, that, that they're being ill-treated doesn't even show up because they're gone. Um, and you know, I think a lot of scientists don't want to think about that very much. Um, and I think, you know, one of the difficult things is the, the scientists who don't do that, you know, who aren't bad actors, don't want to think about it very much because the idea is that, you know, science is this social good uh, that has an inherent, you know, moral code and uh, mm-hmm. we just focus on that. Um, but, you know, if you're asking me if the failure to engage in science as a, hu- uh, a large-scale human enterprise with a significant history and a lot of current social dynamics that, oh, great surprise, you know, mirror and reflect where the society at large is at, um, you know, I think that's important and I think that's something that a lot of people miss. Yeah, and then hopefully, you know, all these problems, you know, quickly get faded out as you know, humans and culture continue to develop and evolve and, you know, come up with different solutions to, you know, figure out these humanities issues. But one question I kind of wanted to ask you are on the topic of comparing to old times. Can I just jump in on that? Sure. You know, there is the, the, the great phrase, Martin Luther King is famous for having said it, um, and I'll botch it, it's, you know, uh, the, uh, the arc of the universe bends slowly, but it bends towards justice. The moral arc mm-hmm. is, uh, is slow, but bends towards justice. Well, Yes, that's true. I hope, or at least I devoutly hope it's true. But, you know, it's not passive. The universe doesn't just bend right. in that direction. We have to right. get it that way. You know, humanity, exactly. you know, science is not going to evolve just because society evolves. Society isn't just going to evolve um, because, you know, it has to, you know, be in, in any particular direction unless we 
Um, right. You we, we have to step out and take those steps in the right direction. Right. And then, okay. Anyway, you were, I'm sorry, I, I did interrupt your question. Where, where, where do you want where do you No, want no, no, it's okay. No, I, I, just, I was just gonna say on the topic of old, older science, whether, have you seen any ideas in any research or any papers that you've read or, you know, any history that maybe an old forgotten idea was, you know, rediscovered later in time by more modern scientists and to make significant discoveries? Was there anything that was kind of lost and overlooked? You know, uh, the, the terrible thing is in, in the heat of this conversation, I'm going, yeah, there are those, yeah, yes. And then I'm trying to come up with the examples that I sort of vaguely recall. I mean, um, there's a, there's a, there are complications with some of these examples, but basically, you know, mm -hmm. Wegener um, proposed uh, plate tectonics, you know, in the, in the early half of the, you know, before the second world war. Um, and the idea was dismissed and ignored for a long time um, until, um, until after the war, when among other things, some new information came that, you know, that, that provided, um, a mechanism, a, sort of a mechanical reason, you know, a, a mechanical engine that could drive, that could actually make the continents move and mm -hmm. the plates move. Um, but the, the argument was, um, uh, was largely ignored for a couple, three decades, at least. I, um, that idea is that that certainly comes as a surprise to I'm I would imagine many people because you, I had no I, I naively just assumed that knowledge of plate tectonics was hundreds of years old, and yeah. I'm shocked to learn it's entirely that entirely a 20th century creation, and there was a gap a significant gap between proposing it and and and, uh, and getting general acceptance of it. Um, you know, in a smaller way, I think black hole science. Uh, shows that I mean the, the the concept comes in in uh, in 1916 really um, mm -hmm. uh, well sort of the first mathematical possibility of a black hole becomes right. apparent in in early 1916 um, and it's really uh, you know while there's some work on the possibility of black holes before the Second World War it's not something that you know the the, the that that takes off in any meaningful way until until after. Um, I'm not sure that so much as it, it I mean, general relativity uh, more broadly um, was much less interesting to physics. I mean, I have a colleague in the history of science uh, program, well, I, in the Science Technology Society, who is a historian of science uh, named David Kaiser, who is a, a physicist and historian, um, who's really dived into the history of general relativity. And um, both, it took a long time for it to appear as part of the sort of serious mainstream physics curriculum uh, and its dissemination around the world. And, you know, this is, again, science is part of society. Science is not this standalone cloistered monastic um, mm -hmm. uh, field. Uh, you know, the, the, the dissemination and pursuit of black holes and, and, and general relativity and, and general relativity more, 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 more uh, broadly um, is something that tracks in part uh, cold war competition. So, you know, something that would seem to be incredibly far away from, you know, uh, theoretical physics turns out to be vital to its development as a, as a, as a field of inquiry uh, right. in, you know, for decades. And so in, when you're writing your books and when you're thinking about, well, I suppose that it, 
this is just this particular subset of science communication in general, but when you're, when you've been writing your books, for example, we know that you wrote one about the ultimately fruitless hunt for planet Vulcan and, and Einstein and all sorts of different topics. What, what's the ultimate objective? Are you trying to show that science was just not so simple and they kind of meandered along and tried to find a, a good story or you, is it more about finding the story or is it more about tracking how, I guess, how science evolved? Um, I guess if I have a, if I have a sort of missionary aim, you know, a goal for my own audience, uh, it's something like uh, coming to understand why, despite its flaws, science is such a powerful system of knowing and how you should um, both you know, engage it and, and engage it with some, not skepticism, but critical intelligence. Right. Know, just because a scientist says something, that doesn't mean it's true. But here is, here is how scientists, even flawed scientists, making, you know, in some cases, really um, incredibly human, sort of surprisingly silly seeming errors um, are still, you know, you know it's still, it's still as, an, as, a, as an enterprise over time, is is the way we figure out our surroundings in critical ways. Um, that said, and, and, and you know, sometimes I mean, my climate science book was really an attempt um, to to persuade people both that we both knew how to make sense of a very complicated, previously intractable system, and that what we were finding out uh, should motivate us. Exactly, I was, you know, I was trying to persuade people not to do anything specific, but be prepared for the that that necessity um you know in um in my second book uh which was a very ambitious book that only i think partly achieved its ambition um it was a history of science told through musical and scientific instruments mm. and i was trying to th show people how the the you know science is incredibly dependent on the questions people think are important to ask at any given time and you build those questions into your instruments. Um, and, and I was trying to give a, a, a different way of thinking about how science works. Um, and that's, so, I mean, I do have a kind of, I mean, I, I want to improve, I want to affect how people understand what it means to know something. Um, and I want, by having done so, to give people um, a better ability um, to navigate our world right now, which is full of uh, scientifically mediated knowledge and argument. Right. Um, and the flip side is, yeah, I have to have a good story. Yeah. I'm not interested. I mean, first of all, it's not good. Readers don't want to, readers want to read a good story, but you know, I don't want to write, I'll be bored writing it if there isn't, isn't a good tale. Right. And, and, and the last thing is, um, you know, uh, we live with the past in all kinds of ways. Um, and we experience history as in some, some ways, a way to ask questions about our present time that we can answer sort of safely. You know, uh, what does it take to actually know something in science? Well, you can ask that of the planet Vulcan and mm -hmm. it doesn't indict us now, right? You can read it, you can find out how people made mistakes and how those mistakes, you know, what it was that made it possible to go past those mistakes in a way that doesn't say, aha, you're stupid, I'm stupid. So, you know, and, and then you sort of say, oh, wait, 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 those guys weren't stupid either. They were acting 
you know, with the full range of human emotion and ability um, to this end or that, maybe there's, maybe we should, you know, learn some caution about our own confidence because, you know, we aren't actually smarter than, than our predecessors. We know more, we have more facts at our disposal, we have more techniques and tools at our disposal, but we're not actually smarter. And we don't have, and we have a similar emotional makeup. If our, if our hearts get in the way of something, if their hearts got in the way of something, then there's a reasonably good chance that our hearts will, will could also trip us up. Earlier on, you talked about how most people now only remember sort of the correct hypothesis, the correct answer to problems that people had in the past. And they often we neglect or forget or what whatever we do um, to theories that were proposed, but ultimately never really adopted through your different books. What has there been a moment that's particularly stood out or in your teachings? Has there been a moment that stood out to you of a theory that was of a really cool theory that just ultimately ended up going nowhere? Um, not so much that. I mean, I'll tell you a story out of the book I'm working on right now, um, which is called So Very Small. And it's about um, the discovery of germ theory and the implications mm -hmm. of what went into making that discovery and then how we've, uh, how we've used that knowledge since. So germ theory is the is the recognition that microbes, bacteria, primarily in its first instance, you know, viruses were added to the, to the theory and the level of understanding a few years after bacteria. But this was done in basically 1870s or 1880s and 1880s. And, you know, familiar names that you, you probably have heard, Koch, Pasteur, these, these kinds of people. Um, and, uh, you know, very quickly in that period, um, uh, folks identified the, um, the microbes that caused anthrax and tuberculosis and cholera um, mm -hmm. and a bunch of other diseases and um, started to understand things like battlefield infec infections and so forth. Uh, and this was hugely important and, um, and uh, led very rapidly, not quickly enough for, for in some cases, but very rapidly to, to, to real changes in medical practice, even before you get to antibiotics, but just lots of things done to, to, to reduce the threat and danger of infection. And it made a huge, uh, you know, just, you know, enormously powerful difference in a lot of people's lives, you know, relatively quickly. Um, and that's really interesting. It happened very, you know, this, this, this um, sort of uh, demonstration that, that microbes do this happened very quickly. And, you know, I say it was just a very few years, not, a, not that many labs, um, and produced very quickly these various responses, including the search for chemicals that could, that could treat these diseases in the body, as well as ways to prevent the diseases from taking hold. Um, but what really got me going, you know, so that I, I thought about writing an article about this somehow, you know, but what really got me going was, was, was tracing the history of knowledge of bacteria, knowledge of the microbial world, in Western science. And it turns out that microbes were clearly identified and communicated to the scientific community of the day in the 1670s, you know, 200 years before germ theory. Yeah. And so that led to the book because the question is, why did it take 200 years to get from seeing bacteria mm -hmm. um, 
to the point where it's recognized that this, you know, wonderful, you know, in, you know, previously unseen, fabulous world full of all these wonderful, weird-looking creatures doing all these different things, um, took 200 years to figure out that those people actually impinged. You know, we weren't. You know, we started out as tourists in the microcosmos, and you know, 200 years later, we discovered that oh, wait, you know, it really matters. Mm-hmm. And I'm very curious as to why that was the case. What what was the dynamic that that made it so hard to get to that you know life saving crucial knowledge? So that's what I'm trying to explore in my book. I mean, I remember when Comet Neowise was around over the summer, mm-hmm. and I remember looking at it, and then I thought, okay, this is cool, but whatever. And then I looked it up, and I saw that I think the comet comes around only ever. I think it was every couple of thousands of years, mm-hmm. which means that at some point there was probably some some person in Egypt or in the, in the US or in Europe or in Asia who was looking up at the sky and saw it and, you know, probably thought some things about it, talked about it. And then everyone just forgot about Comet Neowise until it was rediscovered literally last year. And I always thought that it's really, it was, it's kind of shocking if you will, I don't, it might not be shocking, shock, but it's surprising that something sort of entered human knowledge and then it just wasn't anymore, that somehow it got lost. And it, it's, it's surprising. Do you think that with the, the fact that we saw viruses in the 1670s, but it took another 200 years to understand them, mm-hmm. was that a case of people forgetting that that sighting was made and then someone came up with it independently? Or did we just lack the tools to understand what it was? And it really took 200 years of people thinking about that to ultimately right. come up with an answer. Um, and even, a, even another example with Damascus steel, how you know it used to be one of the hardest steels and now we can't replicate any of the, the old productions is it's kind of along the same kind of line. Um, I'm not expert on Damascus steel. Um, I am always a little bit suspicious of things we can't replicate. I mean, for example, there are, I actually got this wrong in one of my books. Uh, you know, you can't replicate the Stradivarius violin. It's, you know, it's the wood, it's the age, it's the varnish, it's the, you know, the magic formula and constructing it. Um, and, and, and we can't make a better violin. Well, it turns out that that's a very subjective thing. Some parts of that are subjective, uh, not all of it. Um, and people, you know, so, so Damascus Steel, I seem to, you know, I, uh, I've seen you know some some YouTube documentaries where people are talking. So I don't know what the state of knowledge is about the construction of of that particular steel. Certainly, people know how to make the the really beautiful and very strong Japanese steel, mm-hmm. um, you know, many many folds. So so the degree to which you know some knowledge certainly is lost. Um, but going to the question of microbes, and these were bacteria in the 1670s, it was bacteria, not viruses. Viruses were not clearly identified as a separate category uh, until I believe right around the turn of the 20th century. So don't quote me on that. I'm not sure of my exact date uh, on that one. Uh, but yes, it's not that the knowledge was forgotten. I mean, people, people were observing, you know, uh, microscopes became a, a thing that were, were, you know, sort of both uh, used in an increasing range of, of, of um, uh, natural philosophical investigations and scientific uh, work, but also uh, were really, you know, popular again as a cultural um, uh, as a cultural toy. Almost people would have, you know, you, 
one of the things you see in the 18th century is that science and, and 19th century is that science and its demonstrations become a form of hybrid entertainment. So there are lots of ways in which, you know, particularly somewhat wealthier people would engage in, in um, going to a scientific lecture as a performance or what have you. Um, so it wasn't that people forgot about bacteria. It's just the, the um, you know, there was a prevailing theory of disease um, and uh, it could explain a lot of what went on, even if it didn't provide really good guidance on how to deal with, you know, how to treat disease. Um, you know, the questions of contagion and infection and, um, um, you know, the course of a disease once you've got it, all those kinds of things. They had, you know, ideas that had evolved since, since uh, you know, earlier in the millennium. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't as if they were going, you know, we've got this problem we have to solve and here is our solution. It's, you know, here is this interesting, you know, object. Uh, I wonder how it fits in. It's a much more sort of open-ended question. Um, and it, it, it wasn't until, um, I, and I think, I mean, this is where I think it's really important to understand the role of, of culture in determining what scientists can ask. Just, you know, how you do science depends on how you think. How you think depends on all kind, not just, you know, the formal knowledge that you get in school, but the whole, you know, belief and value system uh, that you get starting from, from very young. And so what I'm thinking about in this book is the importance of the, uh, in some sense, the hierarchical view of nature that 17th and 18th century, um, uh, 17th and 18th century thinkers actually had. So if you think human beings are the, the sort of the, the you know, next to the angels and masters of creation and, and all that, um, then I think it's really kind of hard to think these tiny little creatures just kind of wandering around in a drop of water uh, could be so powerful as to, you know, arrive in a town. And if you happen to be, you know, a plague bacterium, uh, right. this pestis, um, you know, you know, wipe out the whole town. I mean, how could you know, no, 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 we are the, you know, we are the crown of creation. Uh, how could that possibly be? Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm still thinking about that and developing that idea, but it's, uh, you know, I think it's, a, um, it's important to remember in, in some sense, you know, my version of what my dad had said about looking for the questions that, you know, looking for the answers that were rejected is, you know, really look carefully at what, you know, in some sense, what questions it was possible to ask in a given time or place, you know, we can only get answers for the most part. Sometimes, you know, something, you know, a discovery happens, we find something and, right. and, and, and that forces a change. But, but very often, you know, we, we make advances because we think of new ways to ask questions. And, you know, you don't just sit in, in the corner of your room going, well, you know, what if that squirrely thing I saw in my microscope, you know, causes the, you know, causes syphilis or whatever. Um, right. Uh, so, so I guess, you know, in some ways, the moral of the story is that even what, you know, what, what seems in hindsight to be inevitable results are much more contingent than we realize. And that big 200 year gap between, you know, sort of the, the kind of like natural history observation of something new in the world and the recognition of what the significance of that discovery was 200 years and so many lives lost 
to uh, to infectious disease. Um, well, I think that I think that tells us something about the humanity in the human experience in human endeavor that is science. Mm -hmm. And I think just one last question for us, given you've written a lot of books and seen, you know, a lot of read a lot of history, read a lot of science articles, science publications. We wanted to know what your your most interesting or like best story that you've come across has been. Oh, best story is always the one I'm working on next. And I told you a little <laughs> bit about that. I mean, yeah. seriously, um, you know, there, there's certainly some fun things. I mean, it is, I mean, I love the story and a lot of people, I mean, this is kind of a cliche, but the idea that, that uh, Alfred Russell Wallace and Charles Darwin mm -hmm. um, show up with the theory of evolution by natural selection at the same moment. And in fact, Darwin's, you know, kicked in the pants to publish uh, because Wallace is about to scoop him. Um, you know, that's an amazing story. Uh, you know, and, and it's amazing in part because, you know, it seems like such a shock. How could that possibly be? And then you realize, well, no, actually that happens all the time. Right. You know, if there's a really important question out there, more than one person is likely to be thinking about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's clearly the case for a lot and a, a lot of science that it's come up independently in so many places. I mean, right. countless times Newton and Cal Newton, Leibniz and calculus is a great one, right. I think. And it clearly seems to be happening all the time. Yeah, I mean, and you know, Einstein and special relativity. Um, there were other people in in the very small world of European theoretical physicists who were getting very, very close to that same idea. I think most Einstein historians would say that that general relativity was was um, was more surprising. There were people thinking in that area at that time, and in fact, Hilbert and his and his students. Came very very close to it, and but you know the Hilbert group at at Göttingen was was thinking about it, but but Einstein really was the only person working on general relativity for the first several years, um, which is one of the reasons we think of Einstein as such a, a dramatically distinctive figure is is that right. um, to some extent he, he sort of went um, he he was he was a partial exception to the rule that um, that that great ideas, great discoveries have a, have a moment and, and more than, you know, the, the, the person we sometimes, you know, hang the Nobel medal around is, is far from the only one who, who is, uh, who is uh, responsible for that development. You know, other great stories. Um, I don't know. It's, it, it, it's really, it doesn't, um, I guess because I love connections between seemingly disparate events you know, that, that's the sort of thing I notice. I love the fact that Edmund Halley, the, the first person to work out that, you know, same problem you're talking about, the return of the periodic comet, uh, also did uh, just a one-off paper um, that is really the first clear foundational paper in the mathematics of life insurance. Huh. Hmm. You know, Ain't that, ain't that funky? I mean, that's really, that's, I, I you know, I, I don't know how hugely significant that is, though it does actually tell you something important about that time and place and how the scientific revolutionaries understood what they were doing. They weren't doing science. They were applying a method of, of thinking and working to any problem that came into view. And it could right. be the motion of the cannonball or it could be how you should, you know, what price you should put on, a, on an annuity or, you know, uh, that you're going to sell to somebody uh, who might have 20 more years to live. Um, mm -hmm. 
and uh, and you know it's anything anything went right so that's cool that's and, and that's why I love these connections but you know mostly it's just a cool story papers there it's in 1693 and in in the um, in the Royal Society's you know uh, proceedings anybody can go find it well um thank you very much for being on with us today thank you for sharing all your interesting stories and your knowledge of an aspect of science that many people are not exposed to enough i think well, my pleasure thank you for asking me on the show hey everyone thank you for listening to this podcast episode this is michael this is sam this is tommy and this is joe if you're listening to this on youtube make sure to like subscribe and share with your friends and if you're listening on apple podcasts or spotify make sure to leave a review all of the show notes can be found either in the description below or on our website. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next week with more Everything Astronomy.